What's up, church fam? How are we doing this morning? Oh, love it. Injected into my veins. I love this. You guys look great out there this morning. Glad to have you here. If you're new and you're like, who is this big bald guy? My name is Eric Fleming. I am the next-gen pastor here at Southbrook. It means I oversee K through 12th, the programs, the staff, all that exciting stuff going on around here, and it's a huge blessing. I also want to take a moment, um, even though, you know, he, he did come out here and really celebrate himself. Um, you guys ever remember, I don't know if you remember when T- Terrell Owens played and he had that interview and he said in that interview, I just love me some me. I think Levi loves him some him. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love that guy. Seriously, though, I do want to take him on. We kicked off this series last week and if you were here, didn't Levi do an amazing job setting this up? Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just really cool to be on staff and be here with the volunteers and the staff that so many people that bring it to Southbrook and say, with my time, talent, and treasures, I just want to give it back and leverage it for the kingdom. Whether it's what Will and his team do, do you, I don't know if you guys realize this, that make this happen. Like at any moment, those, that team back there can say, you know what, lights off, mic off. We're done, let's go home. <laughs> like they could just be like, they have all the power at their fingertips. We're going we're gonna to mute this mic and let's get out of here. And they do an incredible job of making this look great, Todd and John Waldron with The Weekend and what they do and their team, and Levi oversees that, from guest services who are just hustling around here every weekend to get everything situated to the person that comes in for the very first time broken and in need of hope and love. There's a person saying, hey, we are glad you're here. It's powerful. Maybe you experience it when you dropped your kids off in the back where people are saying, hey, I just want to leverage my time and my arms and to hug some kids and let them know that Jesus loves them constantly going on back there, everywhere from men's ministry, women's ministry, to the wow ministry, cancer hope, counseling. There's so many people that I would say are the backbone uh, of church movement, capital C, not this here, but the worldwide, are people who say, I want to leverage my time, treasures, and talent for the kingdom. And that's what we're talking about in this series called Hilarious Holidays is generosity. And you might say, what, what, where did we come up with that hilarious holidays? So it's, it's rooted in the Greek word for cheerful is hilarion, Okay. Where we get our word hilarious from, we heard about it last week from Levi, that God loves a cheerful giver. That's the heart of giving, being cheerful. And the term is hilarious. And I want to start off with this because I think it's a really cool concept when we grasp really what that term means. Listen to this. It says this, describing, it describes someone who is cheerfully ready to act because they've already, pers- already been persuaded or inclined to give. In a sense that they have been won over, so there's no reluctance in their giving. And that stood out to me because it's like when you come into encountering Jesus, the risen Christ, and what he has done for you, and what his mission was all about of love and hope and, and, and being an agent and giving back, and we realize that in our life, it's like we've been won over. I've been won over by Jesus, and I am ready to give back at any opportunity that comes my way. But I think when we think about generosity, we almost always think about money and possessions, almost always. I remember going to church when I was younger, where I'd be high school with my family, and when I was in high school, and I'd go to church, and obviously I'm rebellious, I'm like, this is boring, out of my mind, I don't want to be here, and it's a generosity message, I'm like, oh, here it is, pastor just wants, this is a money grab, he just wants our money, that's the only reason we're here, and I'd be like, bitter, and this is ridiculous, and man, like, we go there, and we think it's money and possessions, and that's a part of it, but it's a very small part. There's so, many, so much more at our disposal that God has blessed us with, and I'm reminded of uh, two men marooned on an island shipwrecked. They swim to this island. The one man obviously is freaking out, frantic, trying to find all the resources. Like, we're going to die here. No one's going to find us. We got we to gotta prepare and, and make this last as long as possible. I'm going to gather resources while the other guy is laying on the beach sunbathing. 
guy, obviously the guy that's living this frantic lifestyle is unsettled by this. He's at this righteous indignation. Why the heck are you laying around? Aren't you worried we're going to die here? No one's going to find us? And the man goes, no. Here's what you need to know, okay? I make over $100,000 a week, and I tithe faithfully to my church. My pastor's going to find me. It's a good one. Let's check that one off. Let's use that again. And that's, but it's so true. We th- I think when generosity comes around, we almost always think, okay, this is about money and possessions. And that's a part of it. That's a big part of our life. But it's so much more than that. Today, I want us to, to open up our minds and take inventory of all the resources we have. And some that's uh, monetary affluence. Maybe it's possessions. But man, here's what else you have that you can leverage. So you've got time is a huge resource that, that our culture is constantly, uh, you know, protective about. Hurry, fast pace, you, time is a resource. We have physical abilities. Some may have more, some may have less, but we have physical abilities that we can use as a resource. We have a mouth as a resource that we can utter encouraging words, uplifting words. We can pray for people and speak life into them with our mouth. If you think our society needs that. We've got ears we can leverage and resource. And maybe you have people in your life that just need someone to talk to. And we quickly, when that opportunity comes along, we do this quick, this quick cost-benefit analysis. Maybe it's a phone call that comes in, and that's a person that wants to talk, and you're like, cost-benefit, okay, what is this going to cost me? Man, this, this conversation can drag on. They're really needy. I've got a lot to get done, and we just push that. Maybe it's a conversation in the aisle at the grocery store, and you're quick to get the things you need to check off your list, and there's that person that you run into at the end of the aisle, oh my gosh. And your mind, it's cost-benefit. I've got to rush this. I've got to get on. I've got to get home. I wholeheartedly believe those are instances, I do believe this, where it's the kingdom of heaven intersects our life, and it's an opportunity where we can use the resources at our disposal to maybe lean in and, and be a little uncomfortable, maybe. But it could be somebody on the other end that has a huge need, and all it is is just an ear or encouraging word. Some of you have intellectual capacities of knowledge and wisdom and experience, and where others are, are lacking that, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I wish my husband would listen to me. But not, not like that, but I mean like people that come to you, maybe it's people at work that, that are new to it, they're young, and they could use guidance and wisdom and leadership, and you have something like that. We have emotional resources. We have spiritual resources. Maybe for some of you, man, this, this thing, reading scripture, comes naturally to you. The words jump off the page to you. The application of those words jump off the page. Maybe your prayer life is dynamic. It comes naturally for you, and there's people in your life that could use your wisdom in that. These are all resources. And so I want us to start thinking about so much more than just money and possessions. We have so many things at our disposal that we can use. And so today, I want to walk us through about five points on why I believe that we should give generously without any expectation of a return. That I believe God lives this way, that God encourages us to to live this way, and it's more freeing to live this way. And so I want to walk us through that. But my first question I'm going to ask you before we get into this, the first question I want to ask, this is a huge question, this sets our attention today, is this, when it comes to all those things I've listed, all the resources that you have, that you've identified that you have, do you wholeheartedly believe that those are God's resources that he has blessed you with and they are his? Or are you on the other side of the spectrum? And it's, make, I mean, it's, it's natural because we live in a society that's about individualism and accomplishment and accumulation. So that, oh, everything you've done, you've done for yourself. No one's helped you. Get more, get more, accumulate more, hoard more, stockpile it away, keep it for yourself and have a white knuckle grip on everything. 
Because you can already see the contrast in these two things. If I believe it's God, I'm free to just open my hands. If I believe it's mine, I'm going to tight knuckle grip that. And everyone is now a threat to that. Rather than everyone's an opportunity to use that. And so I want to walk through this today. Hopefully it'll open some eyes. Maybe it'll refresh you. Um, it's constantly, like I tell everyone, it's just constantly a reminder when I do these things. It's, it's a God's, what I call God's two by four moments. Hits me upside the head constantly. Man, Eric, man, you need to, we need to grow in these things. So we all, man, me included, have to grow in this idea. Man, I, I would love to give without any expectation of a return. And so first and foremost, why I think we should do this is because God himself gave this way. And ultimately, it's all his. Think about this. The crux of our faith, the thing that separates our belief system from every other belief system, no other belief system comes close to the similarities in this, is that we have a God who sees the brokenness in the world, the brokenness between humanity and him, the relationship between him and earth and us and everything going on, and that God saying, here's the deal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to send a solution. I love you this much. I'm going to put skin on, walk among you. My son's going to be with you. He's going to show you how to live on earth and with others. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to go to the cross for nothing he did wrong, die a criminal's death. Three days later, defeat death, all because of his love, and he wants to give generously so he can restore our relationship with him. That's what separates us. It's the linchpin of our faith is the cross, and the cross stands there as a visual that says, I am giving, I gave, and there's nothing, Eric, you can do to repay this. There's, no, there's nothing you can repay, but I'm going to give. On top of that, I wholeheartedly believe the resources that we have at our disposal belong to him. It's all his to begin with. I'm a person who loves jumping into the Old Testament. I love reading in there. I love learning Hebrew, studying Hebrew. I love Jewish tradition. It just fascinates me, all right? And so I was reading uh, in First Chronicles. When's the last time you've been in First Chronicles? Um, First Chronicles 29. Let me give you the backdrop to this, okay? God's people, with David, David as the leader, have decided they want to build a temple to honor God, to glorify God. In fact, it's interesting, I won't get into all the nuances, but in 2 Samuel 7, you kind of see God saying, I don't need that. Like, what? Like you're going to build me a temple? Like, I'm everywhere. I don't reside in buildings. But anyway, they want to go through with this. And so listen to David's words. It's a prayer that David has. And David is consistent with this statement. I love this when he says, but who am I? He says that a lot when he writes to God. But who am I? And who are my people that we could give anything to you? Here it is in bold. Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. O Lord our God, even this material we have gathered to build a temple to honor your holy name comes from you. It all belongs to you. So David understands that here's the deal. We have resources, intellectual resources. We have the idea how to structure this thing and build this thing. We have men power, woman power. We can build this. We can hammer. We can put these things together. We take the natural resources and we organize them and build this thing for you to glorify you. But here's the, here's the weird thing. It's all yours. You created all of these things. And we're using what you first created to honor you. In fact, if you're reading in the Old Testament, Leviticus is a riveting book. Um, it's a, <laughs> no sarcasm at all. It's a book on, on rules and laws and things like that. And in there, you read about the different feasts and festivals that the Jewish people were all about. But these weren't done just haphazardly. There was the, we didn't just celebrate for no reason. There was purpose to all of them. 
And one you'll read about is what's called the year of Jubilee. This would happen in the 50th year. So 49 years would happen in the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. And some powerful things would go on around the year of Jubilee, some redeeming things. In fact, one thing would happen, if I, if I have debts that are, are outstanding between us, let's say I've got insurmountable debt. In the year of Jubilee, there would be like this agreement where we would lower that and the majority of that would be forgiven, redemption. A part of that would be land. They have the law of redemption. Listen to the words around the law of redemption. It's in Leviticus 25, 23. God says this. This is the instruction to his people. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis for the land belongs to me. Listen to these words. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. In an agrarian society where land was power and property and esteem and wealth and sustenance, all these things, you had land that you were going to farm. That's how, that was your means. That was everything. And what you would do is in that setting, to give you some context here, is let's say, I mean, I, I've got more outstanding debt and I need to put in some more work. I might go to my friend. Let's say it's Levi. Hey, Levi, you've got a lot of land. Can I use one of your fields to farm? You would say, absolutely. This is yours. You can have it. It's essentially leased to you, but you can have it for the foreseeable future. But in the year of Jubilee, you would give back all your land to the original family, no matter what you did. If you sold, that's why God says, don't permanently sell anything because it's all mine, because it's going to go back to the family in the year of Jubilee. So you see this. This is why, this is why I love Old Testament, because it speaks to Jesus constantly. In this instance, you see all this redemption going on, redemption, and the greatest redeemer of all time is coming. But this is the way God lived. In fact, in David... David says this in Psalms, Psalms 24.1. He continues to talk about this. He says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. David, it's again echoing the same thing. It's not mine. It's not mine. Nothing is ours. It's all yours. In fact, Paul would quote that same verse in 1 Corinthians 10.26, talking to the Corinthians, the, the Greeks and the Gentiles. He's saying to them, you need to, you need to understand, you're polytheistic. You worshipped many gods before you came into contact with this idea of Jesus. So let me remind you who it belongs to. He echoes this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's his. One true God, there is not many, it's one and it's all his. And so our central text around this entire series has been 2 Corinthians 9. And we'll walk through this in, in and out a little bit today. But I want to point out something that oftentimes when, when I read, there's times that, again, I remember my mom, hey mom, you're right there, there's some, there's some glory to you. My mom would tell me when I was growing up, man, the Bible, the scripture's like an onion. It's like an onion. You learn some things new constantly, every year, something new, every time you peel back another layer. And I remember reading this in preparation, and I was like, how did I miss this part of this verse? And I circled it, and I write like crazy. My, my Bible's a mess. Um, and so I'm going to throw this up here, 2 Corinthians. Follow along with me. Again, let me set this up too. You might have forgot about what's going on here. The church of Corinth, it, it, they, they have affluence, monetary, possessions, all these things. They have affluence. And so a need has arisen in the church of Jerusalem. And so Paul is talking to the Corinthians who have talked a big game, to be honest with you, about how we're going to give and we want to provide and help others. And he's, he's coming back to them and saying, hey, remember that. Remember what you said. I'm following through to say, hey, there's a need. Can you provide for this? Can you provide for this? And he uses this illustration of farming. It's normal, all right? Agrarian societies. And here it is. He says this, remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. This is not, side note, this is not like prosperity message. Paul is not saying, hey, here in a minute, if you plant generously, you, you know, you'll get that Ferrari you've been wanting. You'll get that big house you've been wanting. No, 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 no. Here's my example for why not. The most faithful followers of Christ in the early church, did they have much to their name? 
Just saying, that's not the way. It's more about soul enrichment. It's not about material enrichment. The farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. Your spirit will be enriched. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly in response to pressure. We'll continue on. For God loves a person, there it is, Levi gave us, talked about this last week, who gives cheerfully. That's hilarion. For God is the one who provides seed. I can tell you how many times I've read over this and just missed that. God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. Here's the deal. You can talk about being generous or stingy, but you're not planting anything without the seed God provided. It's all his. You only have what he has blessed you with. And do you believe that? That really is a big question. I think for many, there's times that I struggle as well that are reminded it's God's. Or when it comes to it, do we live more like a Christian atheist? We believe there's God, we trust God, but I don't trust Him with my resources. That's a struggle. But I do believe, man, when we do this, it is way more freeing to live this way. I'm reminded about this constantly. So, I mean, you don't even have to have kids to realize this. Just get on social media, you'll realize this. Or if you at your workplace environment or your, your social group, whatever that is. I'm reminded about, so I, we went to Denver a few weeks back, a couple weeks back. I did a wedding out there. Amazing. I've never been to Denver in my life, and I was just like a kid in a candy store. This is incredible. Let's just climb everything, right? Um, so we go out there. Another side note, oh my gosh, like this is our first vacation without kids. I've got 10, 7, and 3. I almost didn't know what to do with myself. My wife, too. It's like a little, like if you've ever been there, maybe you experienced that. It's a little awkward for the first two days. Like, we're hungry now. Do we go to Chick-fil-A still? No, no. Oh, we can, we can go somewhere else. I can do something outside of grilled cheese and peanut butter and jelly? Awesome. And there's a little bit of that going on where, especially at, at night when you're sleeping, right? Where you're sleeping and you get that kid, you know, coming in at five or six or seven. And it's a little bit, oh, man. <laughs> It's a little bit like, you feel like maybe you're in a Stephen King movie when you wake up and the kid's right here staring at you. And I'm like, is this it? Is this it? T- they realize their power in numbers are taking us out? It's a, little, it's a little bit every time you wake up, you're like, oh my gosh. Oh, it's you. Hey, baby. Like, a little terrifying. I don't know if you've ever been there. And so we did this thing. Like, we, we were coming back, we missed our kids. We wanted to do something like, hey, let's get. We went to Estes Park. What, let's, should we get something for the kids? I'm like, man, like, here's the deal. We've got one that would care about that. I've got my daughter, Addie, who loved, like, we, if we came back with a shirt from Estes Park with a moose on it, she'd be over the moon about it. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. I give that to my son, Braden, who's 10, like, what, what, what do I want with this? Do I like, do I like meese? Do I like moose? I don't care. Was I there? Like, I'm not going to wear this. Like, <laughs> he won't say that, but that's totally like, when he sees that, it's like, what do you, like, Why? Why? So we didn't, get, we didn't get him anything from Colorado. So we came back. I'm like, I want to do something. Let's, I'm going to take him and Carter, our three-year-old. I said, let's go to our, our go-to. Let's go to Target. Right. My son, my son loves like racing, NASCAR. I don't know if it's his Kentucky roots at heart there. He loves his NASCAR. So he's, he literally, it blows my mind. Like he'll watch every sport, but NASCAR, he'll watch the whole thing. And I'm just like mystified. Like really, you know, it's just the same loop. They don't turn, they're not going to turn right at any moment. The same thing. I kind of like it too. I just don't have an Earnhardt around anymore. That's why. Um, <laughs> so he's got all these die cast cars of the racers. In fact, because of that, he loved the cars movies growing up. So he's got all those. And naturally, he's got a three-year-old brother who idolizes him. 
So his brother, what, loves cars. So we go to Target, and Braden picks out a couple NASCARs, and Carter's on the other side. He picks his Lightning McQueens and does some of those. And we go home. I go watch football. They're racing cars in the other room, and then it starts. Here comes my 10-year-old. Carter's taking my cars. He's just taking my cars. He, he won't leave them alone. I've got them racing. they got them going. He keeps interrupting and stepping on them, kicking on them. like, oh, gosh. Then comes my three-year-old. He can hardly put all the words together, but he gets it out. He can figure it out. He's like, he's taking my cars. He won't use them. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, all right. I go into the other room, and this is where, I don't know if you guys realize that maybe you've done this game with them. I'll go, hey, here's the deal, guys. Here's the deal. You get down to their level. really draws them in. And so I get down. I go, here's the deal, guys. None of them are yours. I bought all of them. They're all my cars. You ever do that? And then you realize in an instant you're literally doing the same thing they're doing. This is not yours, it's mine. So you leave, I'm going to race the cars. <laughs> it's a little bit of that. But what I, 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 love, I, I love this because parenting, what, I say this all the time, nothing has stretched me more and led to more growth in parenting. I love it. But man, am I inadequate. Um, but it reminds me of our relationship constantly, my relationship to God, constantly. Like he's the heavenly father. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the son of, uh, son of God. And I remember in that instance, and I'm, I'm preparing for my message a couple, you know, the next day in the office, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is how, this is how we get with our resources. Man, I don't want to share with them. What are they going to do for me? It's hard enough to keep my resources and what I've got in stockpiled. Now you want me to share and give to them? Well, they're not sharing with me. They don't want to give here. And we, act, we, get, we get white knuckle grip and we, we, we raise these walls around our stuff. And God's saying, here's the deal. It's my stuff. You're just playing with house money. Go, use. Because we like shapes around here. I created a triangle for this. <laughs> you can laugh. It's okay. I was sitting down, and really, it's a little bit of, I, I learn visually. I'm such a visual learner. I can do auditory, but I love seeing things. And so I was like, how can I put this down into an illustration that maybe, man, this burns in kind of our image. And so I put this down with our resources. This is our resources. God's at the top of this triangle. And we use, I use 2 Corinthians as my focal point. God resources me. God resources Eric with some resources, with some blessings and things I've got in my life. And if I believe this to be true and they're his, all I'm doing is redirecting them to others who could use them. And when we do this, we'll talk about this later, and when we do this in his name, he's the one that gets recognized and he gets glorified. And so we'll walk through that a couple times today. That it, it's, it's a reminder that, and, and I know, that's tension. Is it his? Do I truly believe it's his? And I'm playing with house money. I get to play with this and use this to help others. The second reason why I think we should get without expectation is he encourages us to live this way. Through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's constantly uh, instruction to live this way. In Leviticus 23, 22, I love this verse. He's telling his people, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Here's the deal. I know that's your sustenance and that's your way of life, but trust me. I will provide your needs. Just leave the corners and the edges for those who don't have. And here's the deal. There's no way the people picking it up could ever repay because they might not even know it's your field. Heck, they're foreigners. They don't know who it is. They're just walking through and picking and eating. He's saying, I've given you resources. Use those for those in need. In Deuteronomy, you get the picture of, uh, again, there was tithing going on in the temple in those days. And what they would do is they would stockpile over three years. 
Tithes would come in for those who'd have not and those in need. In fact, it wasn't just money. It was like crops and food and things like that. And at the end of three years, they would unleash that on those in need who have nothing. Again, the recipient would have no idea who's the, who gave these things. And those, those, the, the stockpile would supply for three years, and again, they would continue to stockpile again. It was a way of life, and it was countercultural. In fact, we get to Matthew, and Jesus is on the scene. The same thing. He's about to send out his 12, and it's in Matthew 10. He makes this statement to them before they go. As you go, he says, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And here it is. Freely you have received, freely give. There's no strings attached. He doesn't say do this as long as they can repay you. Do this to get acknowledgement. He says, no, here's the deal. I freely gave you my resources and my wisdom and my spirit and my guidance. I gave it to you and I didn't expect you to repay anything. So do likewise as you go out. It's the mindset, here it is. Here's the mindset behind this. When, I, when Eric takes my resources and I see a need and I use them and redirect them in God's name, a need gets satisfied the kingdom gets amplified and God gets glorified. That's the return. F.B. Meyer put it like this. He is the richest man in the esteem of the world who has gotten the most. He is the richest man in the esteem of heaven who has given the most. Mother Teresa, who is literally the picture of all generosity. Powerful. I would encourage you to read her story because she struggled mightily with depression. It's powerful. Again, you want to say it's prosperity gospel. Mm-mm. She struggled, and all she wanted to do was give. And listen to her words. She said, you have never really lived until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. Love her words. In Luke 12, with Jesus, again, his ministry is in full force. And anytime, almost anytime you go through Scripture in the New Testament and, and the Pharisees come into the narrative, it's generally not, not, not good for them, right? When they come into the narrative, it's going to be followed by probably a condemnation of how they've mismanaged everything God has done and how they've gotten legalistic and how they've missed the boat on this. And then, God come, and then Jesus comes with correction. Same thing happens here in Luke 12. Jesus is reclining at the home of a Pharisee. He's, in, he's engaged in a discourse with them, a dialogue with them. And in this, you'll see that he says, this is kind of how you've done things and gone about it. How about we flip that? You should reconsider the way you've done it. Listen to these words. You'll see it on the screen. Then Jesus said to his hosts, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do you not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors? If you do, here's the end product. This is why you do it. They might invite you back, and so what? You'll be repaid. That is the motivation behind what you do, Pharisees. How about we change this? And he says this, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, everyone in need, and you will be blessed Also, although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I don't know if there's any greater repayment than that. Jesus says, hey, it's not about here. It's so much bigger than this. And give. The third reason why I think we should give without any expectation of return is it takes the focus off of us. Again, let's go back to 2 Corinthians and let's continue on after we learned about God providing the seed. Paul continues on. He says, and when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank you, Corinthians. Nope. They will thank God. 
And so two good things will result from the ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God as a result of your ministry. They will give glory to God for your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. We live this way because it takes the focus off of us. It's the idea that we work for the cause and not for the applause. Another way to think of it is to use your affluence for eternal influence. We have so much at our disposal. We just need to turn an eye to it and realize everything we have. Say, it's God's, and how can I redirect it to those who could use them? And number four point, why I think we should give this away, it is more freeing. It is more freeing. Again, we'll go back to the triangle. If we believe this to be true, and it's all God's to begin with, it really is more freeing to live this out then. If I'm not looking for a return on that investment, if I'm not believing it's all mine and I worked hard and I want to hoard this and keep this away, but I realize it's his and I just want to help those in need, it's more freeing to live this way. It truly is. Proverbs 11 says it like this, give freely and become more wealthy, not from a material standpoint. The concept is your soul will be wealthy and enriched when you live this way. There's the idea of giving freely, no strings attached to it. It says, be stingy and you're going to lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. And Paul puts it another way in Acts 20, quoting Jesus. He says, it's more blessed to what? Give than receive. It is more freeing when I realize, hey, it's house money. I'm, not, I'm just opening my hands. He's provided. And yes, listen, I'm not saying we haven't worked hard for these things. I'm not taking that away. There's sweat equity in it that we've put in. I'm not, I'm not taking that away. But to realize that God has blessed us with things, the capacities to pull off what we've pulled off, the things that we have, and it's, it's His. And so how can we open our hands to those in need? The last point, we'll spend some time on this as we wrap up, is number five, why we should give this way. It lightens the burden on the recipient. Have you ever thought of this? Like, I don't think we, th- we think about this enough, truly. I mean, every gift that is given, there's a little bit of a burden on the recipient. Think about this. Maybe that's why there's a little bit, I think, you know, with, with my family, my, my sister has her kids, I've got our kids, and, and it might be Christmas time or birthdays or whatever. We say, no gifts, don't, you don't have to do gifts for me. Don't do gifts for me. Christmas time, let's just do gifts for the kids. There, I mean, there's a little, like, altruistic, oh, let's do that because we don't need to spend money. But there's a little bit of, man, I don't know, what you, I don't, you're going to give me a gift, and then I'm going to have to think of what should I get you in return? Does it equal what you gave me? It's a little bit of, do we have any fans of The Office in here? A little bit? Yeah, we do. Come on, it's a great show, right? Do you remember, Michael Scott, do you remember the Secret Santa episode? $20 limit. Michael Scott buys a $400 iPod. And so this whole reason for that is to give it to the intern, to give it to Ryan. Gives it to Ryan, and then all the other gifts pass. <laughs> he, gets his, he gets his gift from Phyllis, who gave him an oven mitt that she created, and he's just like, what is this? I'm giving iPods, and you give me an oven mitt. And so he's so mad that he flips the game and he says, now we're going to go to Yankee Swap. Now let's switch what we got and I want to go get what I want because the return on investment didn't live up to what I gave. It's a little bit of like that. Like when we give, there's a little bit of a burden on the receiving end. Even though we, we take that, we love that. It's like, how do, I, how do I give back or how do I respond to this? It's maybe like this. Maybe you've had this experience. Family member, friend, I, I don't know. Um, 
that loves, uh, uh, bunny ears, that loves to give generously. Maybe they'll come over and say, hey, we'll take your kids for a few hours or, or we'll, we'll, we'll clean up the house or I want to take you out to lunch. Let's take you out to dinner. Um, and get, just get a break. We'll take you out to a movie. Let's hang out. Right? And then maybe you've experienced this where maybe after that for a week or two or three, they remind you of how generous they were. You got to play like that in your life? Where it's like, hey, you remember, you know, watch your kids a couple weeks ago. Man, that was, that was a lot. Kids are crazy, man. I could have been at the spa that day. Could have been out with my friends. But, but you know, I just wanted to help you out. But you're kind of like, do, uh, do you? It sounds like you're going to hold this over my head for a long time. And I don't know if I'm going to repay this because you've got some deep-rooted problems. <laughs> I don't think I can give back what you gave. It's obviously true and abundantly clear here. And so there's that burden, right? And think about it. If you've thought of this, when you give a gift, Maybe you have in your mind, if, if, the, if you have an expectation of return, do you realize we've all got so many different perspectives of what that return should look like? What I think is an adequate return for a gift, it might not be adequate to you. And so if we live this way, the recipient is burdened by, man, I got I to gotta appease Eric in return, but yet it might be different from Levi or Todd or Charlie or whoever, like it's all different. But when I realize it's all God's and I want to give because it's his and I want to help a need, I'm not looking for the applause or the recognition. It's his. And so I make that clear when I'm giving. Hey, listen, why why are you doing this? Why are you giving me this time? Man, God gave. He gives. He continues to give. And I just want to be faithful. Man, I don't need you to respond. I don't need you to give me anything. Throughout all of history and scripture, this way of life, God's way, Yahweh's followers in the Old Testament and New Testament with Jesus was a countercultural movement. It broke down the walls that culture established when it came to generosity. In the Old Testament, again, the surrounding cultures, whether you're a Syrian or you're Syrian, the Egyptians, I mean, this wasn't the idea. You weren't giving your sweat, your sweat equity and everything you've done into those who are less fortunate. You didn't do that. But God sends us and says, this is what my people do, and we're going to do this. Jesus comes on the stage in the New Testament where God's people have now kind of weaponized this and made it legalism. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, when he's talking, his most, I think we could talk on that. I love the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus starts off every time, you have, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. What he's saying is the religious elite have said it like this, and it's wrong. Let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. In the New Testament, in the Greco-Roman world, here, listen, listen to these words about philanthropy and generosity. At its roots, the Roman idea of philanthropy, like the Greek, was about civic responsibility. Giving was an obligation of noble status rather than a duty of common humanity. So what that means is if I'm going to be generous, there's going to be a return on my investment. The Parthenon is crumbling. They need some restoration. They need some new paint. The Colosseum can use some updated flooring and staging. So I want to give to that. I want to give my money to that because here's what will happen if I do that. I will be recognized in society. There may be a celebration for me. Heck, there may even be a plaque put up. And that's why I give. In fact, it was laughable at that time for you to give to somebody who cannot repay you. Laughable. That's no joke. Look it up. They would, it's like, no, why would I do that? Why would I give to somebody who can't repay me? That's silly. And then you have this little movement, this sect of people, what they called the way, the followers of Jesus, who live out the life of Christ and all they did. And they start saying, no, the orphans, the sick, the lame, the widows, the elderly, 
we are doing everything we can to show them love and care for them. And it literally flipped culture on its head. You can see this as time goes on. It started to flip the way that the Greco-Roman world responded. It was just powerful. Um, I, like I said, I love reading Jewish tradition, concepts. It's just, I'm just fascinated by it. Um, and as I was studying, I, was, I came across this idea, this concept. So as, as a practicing Jew, you, you would say prayers three times a day, in the morning, the afternoon, and the night. And at the night, nighttime, and in that prayer, you would utter, utter a phrase called tikkun olom. Tikkun olom translates means fix slash repair the world. It's talking to God, fix, repair the world, God. Gosh, let me see that. Fix and repair this world. Restore this world. We know it's broken and in need constantly. It's broken. Fix the world. Tikkun olom. And what that would mean is out of that would be this act of generosity called tzedakah. That's their generosity. This is how they would give. That through tzedakah, through my generosity, I am realizing tikkun olom. That when I give generously, without any need of uh, reciprocation, when I give, because I believe it's all God's, it's his resources that he's blessed me with, and I can reorient to those in need, I'm playing a small part in fixing what's broken. Isn't that a powerful image? That it's God that restores, but we get to play a part in his restoration if we're faithful. That, man, he has resourced us with things that people all the time around us could use and have, and have needs for. It's just, hey, when that knock comes at the door or that grocery interruption or that phone call or that email or that coworker, are you going to quickly do this cost-benefit analysis? Are you going to say, you know what, I'm going to try. I'm going to try today with Tikkun Olom. God has given me some things that I could hopefully in this moment put a Band-Aid on on an open wound. That's what we're doing. I realize this constantly at Southbrook, I mean, just every week. Um, just the volunteers that are in and out of here. I, I want to share a story because I am good with self-deprecation. I want people to know that, hey, here's the deal. I haven't arrived at anything. I'm constantly growing. I would argue, too, if you ever go to a church and you hear the guy say, I've arrived, you might want to run. You might want to run. Um, and so we were in Denver, and I got the email from Jerry, who's our missions pastor here. Email came in to a few of us and said, hey, you know, you guys, people recognize you in your ministry, so I would love, can you, can you be out there Saturday morning with the turkeys? Giving out the tur- it sounded funny. With the turkeys. Well, giving out turkeys. And I did it. I'm telling you, my humanness, my flesh came in and said, okay, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. Man, we're coming back from vacay. I am teaching that weekend. Saturday, I'm going to have to be getting middle school ready, that environment ready. That's going to be crazy. And then that morning, I'm going to be up at 8 and, and doing that. Oh, how can I, literally... How can I get out of this? And then as God always does with his, his bevy of two-by-fours, I sit down later that day, or I think tomorrow, I don't remember what it was, and I open up, and there it is. Eric's message on generosity. Right? And then in that moment, I go, yeah, you're a moron. <laughs> I seriously, God, thank you for these two-by-fours and knowing it's a growing process. Days I do it right, days I mess up. And I say that because perception is a big part of it in the cost-benefit analysis. In the, between the cost and the benefit is perception. How I perceive things will go. And that minute I'm like, man, I don't mind helping. I don't mind that at all. It's like, ah, but gosh, I could really go. There could be a lot of conversations that keep me longer, all this stuff. I mean, all this stuff. And I get out there that morning. And let me tell you, let me tell you, this is one of the greatest things I've done in a long time. 
I love hearing stories. I love talking to people. I love hearing it. And absolutely, Proverbs, it was a refreshment. What did I have? I didn't have anything. I had time. I had a mouth. I had ears to hear, and I could just, hey, let's talk. I got done. I told Jerry, I said, Jerry, I want to be a part of this every year. That's a, that, was, that was awesome. But perception comes in, and you're like, oh, it's not going to be, a, it's going to be all these things. They might, you know, this person's going to come. It's going to be a dreadful discussion. Who knows how that goes? And then you have that discussion. You're like, oh, my gosh, God, I am so feeble. And so I want to throw up this triangle one last time. As we leave here, let it burn into your, to your mind and, and challenge yourself. We've got some follow-up questions on Facebook and Instagram. Check them out. Maybe it'll help you get started. Uh, and maybe you feel this already. You know this, and this is just refreshing to you and reminding you. But really, do you believe at the end of the day, Southbrook, that everything you have is his? If that's the case, open, open hands. Because others aren't a threat, they're an opportunity. And you get to play a part. You play with house money. You get to play a part. And like I said, when a need gets satisfied, the kingdom gets amplified and God gets glorified. That's what we live for. Let's pray and we'll get going. Dear God, I thank you for this place. I thank you for the families represented here. I thank you for this community, Dayton, Ohio, Lord. I thank you that we get to serve at a church with volunteers and staff that say, man, how can we realize Tikkun Olom in Miamisburg, Centerville, Springboro, West Carrollton, Trotwood, Franklin? How can we do this? Lord, we thank you that you gave out of your great wealth knowing there's nothing I can ever do to repay the sacrifice of your son. I thank you that you are a God who gave, gives, and will give. And I pray that when we leave here, we are a church that embodies this movement, this cruciformed life, where we live and breathe generosity for the sole purpose of bringing glory to you and amplifying your kingdom. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.